I is recording. Eh, my files look okay. Alrighty, and then notes. I should pull up the notes on my phone so I'm not looking over at this laptop. This is the Android Police Podcast for May 6, 2022. Welcome. My name is Daniel Bader, and uh, it's a smaller tighter, leaner, meaner show this week. Just uh, my co-host, R. Wagner, is with us. How are you? I'm okay. I'm very much ready for the weekend. You are coming off a stint hosting your parents at home, I believe. Yeah, they. Um, mom went home on Wednesday and dad flew off to Raleigh for basically a week of golf with one of his best friends. That sounds awesome. Raleigh being one of the best places to play golf in in the country. In the country, aside from Florida, many parts of Florida as well. That's very nice. How has your week been? Uh, a good. Not as productive as I wanted it to be, but a good. That's an evergreen statement. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. Um, this week, it's a bit of a mishmash. It's a quiet week, quieter than usual, given that IO is next week. Last week, we had an amazing show with Ryan Hager and Michelle Rahman going over Android 13 Beta 1. I hope you all enjoyed it. This week, we're just going to touch on a couple of topics. I'm really excited to talk about a rumor that's been going around about the Google Pixel Buds Pro, ANC-powered, all-hands-on-deck Pixel Buds release that's going to be likely expensive and and just like premium, but will have everything that I like about the Pixel Buds and Pixel Buds A-series, hopefully without any of the jaw-dropping bugs, plus some features that I'm hopeful will actually improve the overall listening experience given Google's tight integration with Android and, and the Pixel Buds. So let's talk about that. John Prosser, a couple days ago, leaker extraordinaire, said that the Pixel Buds Pro are coming soon in four very Google-appropriate colorways, real red, carbon, limoncello, and fog. And Ara, I'm trying to figure out what limoncello will look like. Limoncello is a lemon-infused spirit from Italy. So limoncello well, I know will be what it, yellow. I know what it is. I don't know what it's going to look like as an accent on a pair of It's going to be a lemon-lime like the Pixel 6. No, th well, this is much yellower than the Pixel 6 lemon-lime. Like, limoncello is yellow. Like, it's a very bright yellow. So I can only imagine this is going to be eye-poppingly yellow. but. Who knows? Is there I mean, anything could... wrong with that? I mean, no, I don't neon, think so. Like, I'm excited. Oh, walking on a course and one the one of them falls out of your ear. If it's that neon yellow, you will find it almost instantly. That's true. Except if you're if you drop it in snow that's been peed on, but that's <laughs> that's just you know a, a hazard of the job. Um, other colors, real red. I'm excited to see what Google does with red. Just like a really nice red. I really, red, really I hope. hope it's actually red and not this like pinkish red like we it's been a while since we've seen an actual red on a google product other than well no even the nest audio isn't really a red it's more of like a mix between red and pink yeah i mean coral is kind of a google like it's that google yeah pastel style that that's been going around for the last couple of years but i, I think the company's getting a bit away from that Good. more important though than the colors are the features that are going to be in here so we sort of did a roundup of what we think is going to be in this pair of earbuds. 
ANC, obviously, right? The first two Google Pixel Buds didn't have ANC. Google included some sort of audio or sound suppression in, I mean, they're called the, the Pixel Buds, but technically they're the second gen Pixel Buds, but I'm just going to call them the Pixel Buds because nobody really remembers the first ones because they were terrible. Forget the wired ones. We don't care yeah, about not those. The, the non-wired ones. We're talking about the true wireless version. If you're listening to this podcast and you're confused, this is probably not the show for you because you probably understand more than we do about this ecosystem. But I'm just really interested in what Google is going to bring to the table for like an ultra premium Pixel Buds release. We know that spatial audio support is coming to Android. So Google announced this back at CES. They really, it was just like a throwaway line as part of an overall press release that the company put out supporting this idea of better together, this play at making all of Google services work more closely, whether it's a Chromebook or an Android phone or a smartwatch or a car or something that's powered by Android. And most of that was around making it easy to use your phone to set up your Chromebook or use FastPair to quickly set up a matter-powered smart bulb or something, uh, share information between your phone and your smartwatch. But Google did say that spatial audio on your headsets will make you feel like you're there by adapting the sound based on your head movements, positioning the audio in the space all around you. So that was the first tease that this was coming. We didn't really know how and where, but subsequently in Android 13 Beta 1, friend of the show, Michelle Rahman, he found that spatial audio support would be coming to Android 13, plus the fact that it's going to support some new codecs, and it's all kind of coming together in this way that leads me to believe that the Pixel Buds Pro will be sort of like a showcase product for all of these new features. Now, this other area of supporting Bluetooth LE audio, which is a higher performing version of Bluetooth LE, basically this low power Bluetooth codec that every Bluetooth product supports, but it's so low power that it doesn't actually transmit audio. It relies on the regular Bluetooth, like AAC codec, Sorry, Bluetooth LE audio is not a codec. It's a standard, but it mm -hmm. does not support audio through that codec. It basically will consolidate this idea of classic audio as well as lower bandwidth but higher quality audio through improved codecs, the LC3 codec in particular. So all that being said, Google is preparing Android for the future of higher quality audio spatial audio. And I think the Pixel Buds Pro really point to that as, as being one of the first devices to really showcase that technology. Now, I don't love the idea of spatial audio itself. I don't know about you, Ara, but I feel like it's, it's underbaked, this idea of like Atmos in your ears. Like it makes sense for a living room, not so much for your ears. Well, I understand spatial audio and especially like if it's done properly for music and movies, it can be amazing. Like, especially for music. I like to get up and, like, move around when I'm listening to music. Being able to turn and have the music stay in place while you have your own little virtual dance floor in your head is great. It's just a matter of spatial audio is also one of those things of unless it is done properly, it is worse than listening to just regular stereo audio. Totally. So it's a matter of implementation. So am I happy to see spatial audio coming to Android as a whole and to these Pixel Buds, which, God, please let the connection on these be finally well and truly fixed and A and C to actually be good. 
Because the Pixel Buds are the best fitting pair of earbuds I have ever owned. Like my XM4s have great noise cancelling, but I had to endure weeks of cartilage bending in my ears before they actually fit me comfortably. Oh god, that sounds awful. It happens. It's my ears are small. I am a tinier human, so I'm used to. Ear, so I'm you used have to, to withstand e- abuse. Yeah, your, I mean, like by, I, by your gadgets. Yeah, before the Pixel Buds, I didn't even really use true wireless earbuds because most of them were just huge and didn't fit my ears well, and I wasn't going to spend two hundred bucks for something that didn't fit me because you can't really try any of these on before you buy them. Yeah, I mean, I think good quality ANC is is a must. I think to differentiate from the WF-1000XM4s of the world and just the leaders in the category. Like you can't just put ANC and wireless charging in your case and and hope that people pick you out of a massive crowd. I, I think it comes down more to how is this going to be the best pair of earbuds for Pixel users, right? First and foremost, Google has to make this great for Pixel users and then it has to be great for everybody else. I think FastPair is not unique to the Pixel Buds, but it just works so well, so seamlessly on the Pixel Buds. I use the A-Series, the cheaper $99 version that doesn't have ANC, it doesn't have wireless charging, it doesn't have a lot of the frills of the more expensive earbuds out there. But as you said, they're so comfortable. They sound great. The touch controls are among the best that I've used. But the A-Series were the downgraded touch controls, right? You didn't get, you only had taps. You didn't have the swiping like you did on the original Pixel Buds. Exactly. Are I we mean, actually, I'm, that's my real question for the, for the Pixel Buds Pro. Are we going to get the swipe controls back? Because those were gone. Yeah, yeah, they were. And I, I would assume that any more expensive Pixel Buds would have those sensors back in them. Because if you've used touch controls on any wireless earbuds or any headphones for that matter, they're usually pretty bad. And Google somehow managed to get them right. And really, I would use the original, more expensive Pixel Buds today if the connectivity problems had been resolved. But Google just left everybody who bought them in the lurch, said that they would improve the connection quality and and reliability, and really never did. Not to the point where I feel comfortable leaving the house with them, because inevitably they're just going to disconnect. I mean, I'm really hoping that when they do the Pixel Buds Pro, they do a trade-in offer where if you had the original Pixel Buds... They will give you like $100 for them or something to reward you for patronizing the first generation product and sticking with it. I'll go even further. I think Google should have recalled the original true wireless Pixel Buds. They were so unreliable. And even though the company always maintained that it was a very small percentage of users that experienced disconnections, that did not, just from the anecdotal reports over the years that we've done, 100% not true. I think it was bad enough that they should have issued a recall for the entire product. They were always kind of a poison pill for me because of the spatial vents meant that you could never truly, it meant that you were always going to have crowd noise to some degree in there. And I wear headphones out in public in order to not damage my hearing because if you have ever been to a theme park, even when the fireworks and shows and whatnot aren't going off, It's a high enough decibel level just from crowd noise that it will damage your hearing long term if you do not wear hearing protection. And Google purposely went against that with a spatial audio of, oh, you want to hear things around you, this is what you should use. Right. We are the anti-ANC earbuds. Yeah, I mean, adaptive sound was added at a later time. And that and was, it worked, it was, but it's it still worked. just turning up the volume and damaging your ears in an attempt to offset the fact that there's noise that you are purposefully piping in. Right. But that also 
contributed to the fact that they were so comfortable because there was never a pressure issue in mm. the way that a lot of earbuds that are completely closed leave you with. And I think they made the right call there, but the lack of ANC was a huge disservice. Overall, it was just not a great product. You couldn't rely on them. Uh, whereas the A-series have been rock solid from day one because they use a different connection method to your phone. And I'm 100% certain that Google will not go back to that original connectivity profile. And if the ANC is good enough, if the colors are nice, if the comfort is improved, you know, all of these things, I would pay $200 for these, especially since the XM4s and the new Sennheiser Momentum True Wireless 3, like they're 250 bucks. They're not cheap. So Google could still release a killer product here with every feature on the market and undercut its main competitors. I mean, if you give me quality A and C and those swipe controls back, because having the ability to swipe up, down for volume, forward, backward for next previous track, and then just tap for pause and press and hold for assistant, like that control system was irreplaceable. I will pay so 200 good. bucks just for that gesture control system and A and C. Yeah. So in other audio news, the Sony WH-1000XM5 have been leaking all over the place. We've now seen promo shots for this uh, headphone. We've seen the box saying that it's going to have 30 hours of battery, which is not an improvement over the XM4, unfortunately. Uh, it's also 30 going to- 30 hours is still fine for a pair well, of over-ear headphones. Like if you can go more than 24 hours of media playback, that's great. That's true. That's fair. It's also natively supporting Google Assistant, which is excellent. Well, the 4 did that too, didn't they? Both the both versions of the 4 had Google Assistant built in. Did they? Yeah. Okay. Or at least I well, I thought both of them did. I know the uh I know the XM4s had it, or the uh, WF XM4s have it because every time I set up a new phone with my Google account and then I turn in my earbuds to listen on one of my other phones, I'll get the pop-up on the phone saying, oh, hey, there's a Google Assistant earbuds thing that's already connected to your account. Do you want to hook them up to this phone? Okay. Yeah, actually, I just noticed that. So you're right. This doesn't seem like a massive feature improvement over the fourth gen. I do wonder then what else has been improved other than the design because the design is a pretty big departure. Maybe the price. Maybe it's not that they gave us a ton of new features. It's more of focusing on more comfort and then lowering the price. I hope so. But these look kind of bozy. One can only hope because those look great. Like I wanted to try a pair of the WH headphones for a while. Yeah. Like the, the earbuds are great, but give me over here headphones whenever possible. And these look fun. I just know that if they're going to be 300 350 bucks, they're not coming home with me because I can't force myself to spend that much money on headphones unless literally every pair I have is broken. Well, I mean, the good news is that the XM4s are going to go down in price and Sony still sells the XM3s right now at a discount. So the XM4s were a massive improvement over the XM3s in a number of ways. And I think bringing those down to like 200 250 will make them like a super coveted product again. Yeah. Because I think, what are they now? Like 300 MSRP? 350. So I think we've seen them go as low as 280 on, yeah, on sale, so. but their MSRP is at 350. I would be, I mean, look, inflation, all that. I, I don't think that the XM5s are going to be discounted over the XM4s, but it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility to see a minor price drop or at least the same price. But 
bringing down the XM4s to 250 permanently, that's a killer deal. So I'm well, I mean, we have that. Prime Day this summer, so once the fives are out, that'll clear the way for some nice discounts on the four during Prime Day and Black Friday later this year, since that'll start in like September, I'm betting this year. Yeah, that's true. I might pick that up, actually, if they go on sale during Prime Day. We shall see. I don't think I need, <laughs> I don't you think do I need more need headphones. You do not need any more headphones. But this, it's you have just, a literal it's... basket full of earbuds. I know, but I, I also have a... Um, and you have a sawhorse with all your over-ear headphones, I, I have right? a sawhorse with all my over-ears. So yeah, I don't need any more, but that's, that's fair. I, I, still like, I still like headphones. Send them my way. Let's move on and talk about your pick this week. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about Chromebooks because I have been playing with a pre-production model of Acer's new Chromebook Spin 514. And if you have been keeping score, yes, this is the third one in a year because one arrived at CES last year. One arrived in October, then another one just arrived this week. So 15 months and three models. And the only thing that differentiates them is 1H was a Ryzen, 2H was an Intel, 3H is a Ryzen again. So it's been a very interesting series to look at over the last year, year and a half. This one is a very, very early pre-production model since we're not going to see this laptop hit shelves until the fall, which... I'm really hoping it's a little bit earlier than that, considering the fall is what I was hoping we were going to get another Intel version of this, because the 2H, the Intel version of this, which is a $700, $750 laptop, the 2H was amazing, and I was very, very sad when they eventually asked for it back, because it was a fanless Intel, and it was wonderful. Why does Acer do this? Why do they seed super early pre-pre-production laptops? Well, they're usually great. This is the first time I've had a pre-production issue that had any like major problems. Right. But like they're saying to us, like we can't write about XYZ thing, but also like, what's the point? Are they asking you for feedback to improve the product? Like most companies don't issue super pre-release versions of things for publication. You know, they may ask us to like look at stuff and test it behind the scenes, but they want us to write about this, but also know that it's super rough. Well, I think the reason they got seated so far in advance this time was because this is when AMD was announcing the new 5000 series mobile chips. I think we got pre-production units more for the processor side of things than we did for Acer and the actual Chromebook laptop side of things. Except you can't benchmark anything. So what's the difference? Can't tell are what's bullshit. so great about it. No, I know that, but you can't <laughs> if it's if they're aligning it with the release of the um the new Ryzen chips, you can't say anything specific about the Ryzen chip. So I don't know. This just feels odd to me. We could do anecdotal, and I mean the only time I have had issues with the Ryzen acting up any is if I played Stardew Valley for more than six hours straight. I think you have to, you have other problems if you're playing <laughs> Stardew Valley for six hours. Ugh. <laughs> oh. Yes, but I mean, it's been an interesting, it's been a, I did multiple screens with it, I did multiple windows, I put it to the test, but it's a Ryzen 7 with 16 gigabytes of RAM, so short of delving into like Linux and Steam, there isn't a whole lot you can really do to overtax the unit as it stands right now. It also doesn't help that this is pre-production hardware that couldn't be updated. So there was nothing that was getting updated while we were testing these units. I need to send mine back now. But I mean, for what I've seen, it looks like it'll be a good laptop so long as the screen is better than the one that I got shipped. Because my pre-production model had a screen that was, I think, the most washed out Chromebook screen I've seen in about four or five years. But again, 
pre-production, so not a real indicator of performance there. But yeah, I'm I'm also kind of wondering why this exists, given the price range that it's going to be at. The Spin 514 1H was a $480, $500 laptop. So it made sense as like a mid-range version. And then the 2H was fanless 11th gen Intel Core processors. And it was $750 because it was fanless Intel uh, 11th gen Core i3, i5, i7 processors. The 3H with the Ryzen 5000 instead of Ryzen 3000 mobile chips starts at 580. And I'm not sure how well it's going to play there, especially considering uh, Lenovo has 11th gen Intel Core Chromebooks for $450, $500. And then we have Acer with, uh, Acer itself has the Spin 713. Its list price is $700, but it's been out for almost a year now. So it's getting more frequent discounts. And I want to say either monthly or semi-monthly sales that it gets is $100 off the 713, which takes it down Mm. to $600. And I don't see a world in which you take the 514 over the 713, considering the 713 is a more powerful chipset, has a much better screen, and is a slightly more polished device. Hmm. I mean, granted, I will take a 16 by 9 laptop over the 3 by 2 on the Acer Spin 713 because... I'm sorry, guys, but that just makes the palm wrist too big, and it's just not comfortable for smaller hands to type on when I'm on the couch. But otherwise, the Spin 713 is my laptop. That is what I use when I am not reviewing things. And I don't know if the 514 3H is going to be able to compete at its price range in as densely populated a market as the $500 to $7 space is. I mean, do you think this is Acer just doing AMD sort of like a solid you know, diversifying its product lineup because it needs to? I think Acer believes in doing yearly updates for every laptop, whether it needs it or not. Hmm. Because, I mean, the 2020 Acer Spin 713 was a pretty freaking amazing laptop, especially at $630. And then the next year they came along, they shoved both of the USB-C ports to one side and made them Thunderbolt. Uh, And then they bumped from 10th gen to 11th gen Intel and jacked the price up from 630 to 700. Like, if they still sold the 2020 model of the 713, that would be the laptop I recommend to everybody, especially because it would be discounted to like 600, 570 right now. Right. Like, when the 2020 model was starting to get discounted and clearanced out, you could get that laptop for like 350 to 400 bucks. And that was just absolutely unbeatable for a laptop of that quality. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there are just more options now for Chromebooks that it makes sense for a company like Acer to have options at every 50 or $100 price point. And they're not getting, like, they can do a premium Chromebook with an AMD chip at two to $300 less than the equivalent Intel. I mean, that's, that's the way it is on the Windows but side. But it won't be 250 less. I mean, 580 the first model for the 2H is 700 so it's okay. So a hundred something. hundred and twenty dollars. Like, it's a meaningful amount, though. Like when you're buying a Chromebook, that's like a twenty to thirty percent discount for a laptop that's going to last you eight or nine years. I don't really think it's because I mean, think about it. All these laptops are going to last you till June twenty twenty nine. Doesn't mean people are going to use them until then, but it does. True. I mean, when people are like, I just had this conversation with my mom this week, right? She's 
my brother's looking for a laptop and she wants to help him out for his birthday. So she's like, can you help me look out for Windows laptops in the six to $700 range? And when you do that, you're like, is this Lenovo at $699 better than this Dell at $729? Or like, does that $30 matter? And I think when you're looking at a budget gadget in general, it matters. It's a significant difference. And especially when you're on a budget. So I would not discount that $120. I wouldn't discount the importance of that, especially if it's basically the same laptop, just with a different chip in it. Yeah. I will say what might be the most steep competition for the Asus 514 at that 580 price point is the uh, Asus Chromebook Flip 536, which has been out for one year as well, but uh, it's 569 and it's been getting the monthly or every two month discount to uh, 469 because whenever it drops right. below 500, I'm like, oh, that's a good recommend because it's a 15 inch Chromebook that actually works well. Yeah. And I, I like Acer, Asus's Chromebooks better than Acer's traditionally. I think the Flip series has always done really, really well. I have the Duet 5 here that I've been willfully ignoring for months but i i need to try it send that to me i miss mine i was so sad i had to send it to jerry i'm sorry it's it's not worth sending it to you in the u.s but one day one day you'll get it then at least pull it out and use it it's i'm, I'm gonna sure make send it you the 500 version it will be decent especially as like a weekend chromebook i just hate the keyboard i think the keyboard even though it's better than the Have original un- flip wait have you unboxed it and used it the keyboard on the duet 5 wasn't bad I don't like it. It's still too, it's just too mushy for me and the stand and everything. I just, I don't, I don't like it. Look, I'm a MacBook user, right? Like that's my laptop. I mean, this is going to sound funny because I did have a scissor switch keyboard for years, but like, I just prefer those types of keys and I don't like mushy keys. And there's just something about a two-in-one where the base has to be a little bit flexible that I just find it hard to type on. I this is certainly better than the older Duet. Like the the original like two hundred fifty dollar Duet was just garbage. Uh, Excuse you, the original Duet was amazing for its price point. Yeah, for its price, for like two hundred fifty dollars, but the keyboard was objectively terrible. And the I wanted, was I never small. wanted, to, I never ever wanted to type on that. I just hated <laughs> typing on it. Well, that's why Bluetooth keyboards existed. <laughs> no. Anyway, I'm that's just me. I'm I'm a keyboard snob. That's just I'm never going to be okay with terrible terrible keyboards. But uh anyway, I wanted to know your opinion about this $1150 MSRP <laughs> on the, the Dragonfly. Uh, the HP Dragonfly which <laughs> was announced back in January at CES. It was at CES. We, yeah. We didn't actually have the consumer MSRP yet. So this is like the nicest Chromebook you can buy, but it's also $1,150, which is just bananas. So what oh, do you think about that? Oh, and we haven't even gotten to the best part. One of the things that they touted with the uh, Dragonfly was the option for a 1,000-nit screen. The 1,000-nit screen is a non-touch display, which is just the most bogus news ever. Like, we've been stuck with 250-nit screens on Chromebooks for a decade. There have been very, uh, like, the number of 400-nit laptop screens before 2020, you could name on one hand. And thankfully, the other screens for the Dragonfly will be 400-nit screens. But this was going to be the first, like, super-duper bright Chromebook. 
And I was so looking forward to trying that, even though it was going to be ridiculously priced. And the super, the one that you would actually want to use is just a regular laptop. It's not a touchscreen. And I'm sorry, folks, but you want a touchscreen for a Chromebook. Yep. No, I, 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 that's just a bad idea. That's like, I want, I still very much want to review it. I still very much want to try it. Please send me a touchscreen model. But yeah, it's when you start at 1150, and that's for the i3 model, it gets very, very difficult to try and recommend that to anybody over the other i3 models that are currently on the market. The i3 Asus Flip 536 is 556, regularly goes down to 469. Uh, or is regularly 569, regularly goes down to 469. The Lenovo Flex 5i, which with 8 gigabytes of RAM, is actually a very decent laptop, is 430, and I'm betting it goes down to like 350 for Prime Day. Like, even i5 Chromebooks are less expensive than this while doing just as good a job, if not better. I don't know what the appeal here is, other than this is a very premium branded laptop, except that it's more expensive than anything Samsung or Google has put out without really showing that it's going to give you anything else for that money other than it's HP and corporations are going to buy oodles of them for enterprise. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't see any other circumstance where people are paying that much for a Chromebook. I, I just don't get it. It's a nice, I, HP makes great laptops, but there are better options out there for you. So, all right, let's move on to our last segment. We're just going to go through a couple of small pieces of news here. So Google announced this week that it is finally bringing passwordless authentication support to Android and Chrome. This has been a long time coming. Google has talked about this many times, but it's actually going to roll out. And this idea here, you know, you have your phone on you, you have the ability to both have your phone physically as an object, which is a first layer of authentication. And then you have the ability to biometrically or using a password, unlock your phone, which is a secondary layer of authentication. So it's using this as a way to replace passwords. It's something that Google has been working on as part of the FIDO Alliance, which has been trying to get rid of alphanumeric passwords for years. It thinks that the threshold is just too high for good password hygiene. And I think there is something about the fact that most people have a smartphone. Most people have a smartphone with some sort of biometrics. And that when it comes to balancing security and convenience, and that's really all authentication is, right? A password, you can make your password the word password, you can make it one, two, three, four, five. It will keep some people out, but it's easier and more convenient for you to store that password in your brain or in a password manager versus having some randomly generated alphanumeric number with symbols and 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 whatever. Or you can do a long string of words together, right? Like we've all heard the reasons that you should shore up your password strength. But really, if you think about it, passwordless authentication is high security and it's convenient because you already have your phone on you at all times. And some people are already doing this. Google already uses your prompt if you're logged into your phone and you have two-factor authentication set up on your Google account. Normally, Google will send you an acceptance prompt as a way to verify your identity. That is the default on Google's services, but you can use something else. You can use a password, 
You can use something like Authy or Google Authenticator. But or you really, can use if, a hardware key, which are awesome too. Yes. And, and I mean, I totally support that. Like, like a Ubico hardware key, something like that. That's the best thing to do. And if you've ever listened to Phil Nickinson, our, our former colleague and boss at Android Central, talk about his love of YubiKeys, uh, it's, it's just... Uh, it's adorable. It's and adorable. I mean, he really I, values I, security. I got the USB-C one when they were because uh, they were giving it away to Google One users who have two terabytes or higher. I really need to set it up because, yeah, that is the gold standard for if you want to have two-layer authentication, The having a physical key and then having your phone. Having access to both, giving you access to all of your accounts rather than having to put things in every single time is a higher threshold while still being easy enough for people to regularly use. Yeah, I mean, look, it's something that you kind of have to wrap your head around. Like, how could a phone be more secure than a password? But really, like, if you're talking about domain authority here, you're saying, I have a physical object in my pocket. So if somebody wants to break into my account, they would need to physically have access to the phone. And then as a secondary line of authentication, they would have to have my fingerprint or my password or my face in front of them as well. And it's unlikely that they have both of them. Whereas if you have a poor password, or if even if you have a, a long, difficult to guess password, phishing attempts make it relatively easy to bypass them. And then increasingly, there are ways to get around two-factor authentication. Well, SMS two-factor is just absolutely worthless in America, where all of the major phone companies will basically let you back into your account if you say you lost, uh, will give you an, an extra SIM or make it ridiculously easy to clone a SIM card these days. Yeah, that's brutal. I think that the fact that SMS-based two-factor is still the default at so many companies, especially places like banks. My bank does not support Authy and Authenticator apps. It, it forces you to either receive an email or a text message. And I, I'm just, I don't understand this. I mean, you're a freaking bank. So yeah, I, I agree. And it is something that you have to get your head around. But once you do, it definitely makes sense. The only difference though, is that you will need to have your phone on you at all times, which, you know, that's not always something you can take for granted. Most of the time, yes, but some people might not be comfortable with that. Well, and if they aren't, there would be other ways of doing this. You could still use the super long password if you needed to. If your phone dies, you would still have ways to get into your account. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most places, once you set up a strong password and two-factor, they give you backup codes, right? Yeah. That will allow you back into the account as long as, you know, they say, print this out and store it in a safety deposit box in case you ever need, you know, you lose access to your your password or something like that or you don't have access to a, a phone that supports two-factor, like here is your way back in. But that's kind of a last resort. All right, let's finish this up. Um, Ara, why don't you uh, close us out with this uh, Watch 5 rumor? Okay, so we have new leaks that say that there are going to be three models of Galaxy Watch 5 sizes. We're going to have a small one, which I'm guessing is our regular, the 40 and because. Uh, each one of them has two sizes, which is why we think that it's not just, uh, oh, there's the watch and it's coming in three sizes. No, we have three models and each has two different sizes. We have the small one, which would be either, which we think are, is either going to be the Samsung Galaxy Watch 5 or a Samsung Galaxy Watch 5 Active, because I'm sorry, I still love the Active series. Those were the best smartwatches. 
because they were nice, they were compact, they were small, they actually fit on a woman's wrist without being ridiculously big. Then we have the regular one, uh, then we have the middle one, well, uh, the semi-large one, which is either going to end up being the Galaxy Watch 5 Classic, which the Classic branding seems to have been ditched this time around, if certain rumors are to be believed, or it's going to be the regular Galaxy Watch 5. And then there is a third one with a pro branding, according to the originally Dutch language leak that came out earlier this week. So I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this, other than I'm really hoping that if you're going to do three models, you make the small one smaller, except it doesn't seem like they're doing that. Because the smallest watch size is still 40 millimeters. I mean, 40 is small if you can get rid of bezels, right? If you can't, then it, it can be quite large. I mean, that's the difference between like the Apple Watch and the 40 millimeter Galaxy Watch in the past. I'm wearing a 40 millimeter Galaxy Watch 4 right now, and it's still significantly larger in shape than the Galaxy Watch Active 2 was. Although, yeah. to be fair, a large portion of that is how the lugs and the Watch 4 itself is designed as opposed to the Active series. But I'm I'm very much hoping I don't think we're going to get a smaller watch for this generation, which is a bummer. Maybe next maybe with the six, we can finally get back to having something that is a truly like a 38 or a 37 that would feel good on a woman's wrist while mm. still offering up the information density that we need, especially with Samsung keeps saying we're going to get you Google Assistant. We're going to get you Google Assistant. They did an update last month that put in the actual like, here's where it's going to go, but we don't have it yet. I'm really hoping that by the sixth, we A, do have it, and B, we can trust, uh, we can use it more so that way we don't have to rely on the screen being big enough to like tap or swipe out commands on. Yeah. Because if I can just rely on Google's voice model, if I can do that, like, okay, G, reply to text XYZ, then I can get by with having a smaller wrist and then just being able to use the watch for check my steps, check my notifications, do my media controls. I don't need that screen to be super duper huge to still be useful. Right. I don't think Samsung's going smaller again. Yeah. Like realistically, this is not a company, although that's not technically true. Like the smaller Galaxy S22 is smaller than the S21 by a very small margin. But I, I don't know. I don't see it going under 40 mil again. Samsung makes fitness trackers for people who want a slightly smaller. They don't really anymore. Well, no, they don't anymore, but they have. They did. Like, that's why I was hoping that we were going to get a fit model that had a smaller screen and a smaller, more functional profile. Because, yeah, Samsung doesn't make any of the fitness trackers anymore. And I don't even think the old trackers are going to be supported much longer. Yeah, it's, that's true. I think the fit, the fit is still sold, but it's not really a, a widely known product anymore. Yeah. If Samsung wants to keep having, like, there are other options for small Android smartwatches. There aren't that many of them. I mean, it's basically just the Garmin Lily and then maybe a couple of Fossil styles. But Fitbit is going to be getting into the Wear OS game with its smartwatches. And Fitbit, I'm pretty sure, is going to be able to make a small watch with Wear OS on it that is much more small wrist friendly, if I could say. I would hope so. I mean, like Fitbit is much more comfortable catering to that market and Samsung isn't. I just think Samsung knows where its bread is buttered and it wants as much technology in these watches as it can fit. And by making it smaller, it has to 
either make the thing thicker or find ways to remove features and sensors. And I don't think it wants to do that. So the trend has always been bigger on Samsung devices. And I don't, I don't think that will change with the watches. I think what's interesting here is the large pro rumored model that has this massive 586 milliamp hour battery and is going to be like a behemoth on your wrist if, if it, if the rumors bear out, but that's Samsung really just asserting it's like Galaxy Noteness on on people's wrists and well they who saw knows? the TicWatch Pro the TicWatch 3 uh TicWatch Pro 3 god what was that extra name on it the most recent one they saw that behemoth and said oh no we we cannot be uh we can we can do better than that yeah like we're looking at like a 48 50 millimeter face here if this if if like the scale of this battery ends up being correct so that's not a watch. That's an Omnitrix. It's just <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. You want to wear that around your neck, not around your wrist. Oh man, that's like a Flava Flav clock style yes. smartwatch. Yes, I was trying to resist that analogy because I know it's overused. <laughs> oh, but yeah, no, that's that that's comic. That's going to be comically big, even on most men's wrists. Let alone any woman who wants to wear something like that. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe Samsung can pull a rabbit out of its hat. All right, we're going to end it there because we got uh, we went really long. So Sorry, but not really. Well, don't apologize to the listeners. Apologize to Jules for having to edit this. But I, <laughs> I appreciate all of you. If you want to find Ara, Ara is at Ara Wagco. You can find me. I'm at JourneyDan. We are at AndroidPolice.com. We are covering IO next week, so stay tuned for that. That's on Wednesday starting at 1 p.m., Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. We'll have tons of coverage, every announcement. Stay with us on that. And then we'll have a podcast next week just running through all the big announcements. So until then, hope you have a great week and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Go watch Our Flag Means Death. It's awesome. Happy Arcade Fire Day to whoever (laughs) celebrates. There must be a few of you out there. Or I guess Jack Harlow Day, if you're into that, uh, Taylor Swift Day. We're recording this on a Friday, May 6th. So this is New Music Day. And uh, it's funny because in the Slack, it's become a bit of a tradition now where as soon as we log on in the morning on a Friday, we all post our music that we are most excited to listen to. And this week was basically... Arcade Fire and Bad Bunny, who I I know of only through his collaborations, but I enjoy it because it's like as a parent who basically only listens to Disney stuff, I actually have to force myself to sit down and listen to good to, to new music, and I like these moments in the morning where I'm like it's a quiet Friday morning, it's just me and my headphones as I'm getting ready for work, and I'm just listening to a couple of albums as a release. It's, it's become like this really nice way to start the weekend. I, I enjoy it. The new music for me is essentially the soundtrack for Our Flag Means Death getting released, but I will say, uh, happy finally having a, uh, a Star Trek show that actually feels like Star Trek back, because Strange New Worlds was awesome. Yes, I, I'm actually, <laughs> we, have some, we, we have some conversations going with uh, some of our former Android Central colleagues all about that um, in another Slack. And it's just, that's the sigh of the uh, Star Trek Picard finale. <laughs> what a <laughs> massive disappointment. So I'm going to be loading up on Our Flag Means Death because I just listened to the Pop Culture Happy Hour episode about it. And I'm 
I'm now obsessed with it, even though I've never seen it. But I'm I'm very very happy it exists. I'll be I'll be watching it over the next few days. I hope it um, won't take you very long. It, it's ten episodes and they're a half hour each. Yeah, I like those, and I, I I'm 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 hoping for every fan out there that it gets a second season because I I don't think it's been picked up yet. Yes, I have been I've been voraciously devouring any and all our flag means death fan art because there has just been buckets of it, and it is getting me through until we get a season two for. OMFD, or we get the second season of Good Omens now that I think it is wrapped. See, I know that you've been doing it because the Twitter algorithm <laughs> likes to think that I am a fan of your replies to people's tweets about oh, our flag means death. I'm so sorry, but so not really because the art is amazing. About how amazing some fan art is, I get the tweet at the top of my list being like, Ara loves this. And I'm like, All right. I mean, it's good art. I'll be honest, but I'm. I'm not sure I get it yet as much as as some of the other fans, but well, uh, you know, are you on latest or are you on top for Twitter? Because you uh, got to be at latest. <laughs> no, I just let it. I just let it assail me with terrible tweets. See, that's what happens. I'm the that is what happens when you don't do latest their tweets. I know. I Anywho, know. Well, we should look, probably Twitter's get to Android die. at some point. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter will die very soon when I it's know. taken over. Elon Musk and turn into whatever it is going to turn into. So I'm just enjoying the last few weeks of it being it's the, it's this like chaotic terrible place, but at least it's a chaotic terrible place that you understand. So it, it's like the um the enemy you know rather than the enemy you don't. Um I'm just not sure I want that unknown enemy at this point, but we'll see. I mean, I'm I'm open to being proven wrong. Hmm. So there's that. Uh, so...